Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick, and on today's show, Louisiana's Creole culture and a famed New Orleans neighborhood share the spotlight. Our Creole cultural exploration takes us just outside New Orleans to the old Mississippi River Road, where we'll share the story of a Creole family in a plantation named Laura, voted a top Louisiana travel attraction and the best history tour in the USA by Lonely Planet. And we'll come back to New Orleans to a neighborhood where African Americans lived freely during slavery in what is considered the oldest black neighborhood in America. Thanks, dear. Our most recent journey to New Orleans and Louisiana took us along the Mississippi River to Laura Plantation, a Creole plantation with a rich and unique history set apart from the American experience for much of our country's history. From the home itself to the stories of the four women that ran it, including Laura Locule Gore, for whom it was named, Laura is a 200-plus-year-old sugarcane plantation, and today one of Laura's descendants, Norman Marmion shares the compelling stories of the Creole women, slaves, and children who battled the rigors of life there. What's the matter with you, Laura? You don't love your mom and your dad? You said you're Creole. Your family comes first. He says, but tonight I'm listening. It sounds like you might want to be an individual and live your life on your own terms. And girl, if that is the case, those Americans live down the road. I said, Papa, I love you with my whole heart and soul, but that's what I want. I'm going to grow up to be a modern, liberated American, and I'm let's go. Finally, an integral part of the fabric of New Orleans is the Faubourg Treme neighborhood, arguably the oldest black neighborhood in America. Not only is Treme the birthplace of the civil rights movement in the South and where African Americans lived freely during slavery, it became a place of social and economic diversity. Native New Orleanian documentarian and director Don Logston joins us to tell the story of Treme in a film entitled Faubourg Treme, the untold story of black New Orleans. I don't want to leave the impression that it was some sort of a paradise uh, back in the 1700s and 1800s by any means. It was a place where people were always struggling to survive, but it was also a place where things were infinitely better and there were infinitely more possibilities than there were for African Americans in the rest of the country. We hope you'll enjoy this exploration of Louisiana and New Orleans history, culture, and the moving human interest stories from Laura and Faubourg Treme. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. Visit and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Today's show is brought to you by Dealo, a faster and safer way to buy and sell locally. With Dealo, you can download, register, list, or buy within 30 seconds. It's the newest, quickest, safest way to buy and sell in your area. Download Dealo from iTunes. Just west of New Orleans, you'll find Laura, a Creole plantation, found along the old Mississippi River Road in the heart of plantation country. The sobering but important stories of Laura's Creole women, slaves, and children, dating back more than 200 years, tell the story of a people and a culture who found tremendous wealth through the sorrows of life in an America that cared little for Creole slaves and women. One of the descendants of Laura Lecule Gore, Norman Marmion, takes us on a compelling journey into the little-known world of Creoles. Here in Louisiana, we're all considered cousins here. <laughs> <laughs> it's the truth. 
Creole is the way most of us still live. It's a blending of three ethnic groups. It's European, it's West African, and the Native American Indian. It's all blended together in one way of life. All three of these ethnic groups are going to live right here. And where are we standing for 300 years? This is the site of a huge Indian village. And when they built the plantation in 1805, they stuck this in the center of the village. Frenchmen think Indians are French. They don't kick them off. They said if the Indians live here today. West Africans come as slaves from the country of Senegal, 1720s. Their descendants uh, still live out here. Two families from Europe ran as a big sugarcane farm for 190 years. First 95 years French, second 95 were German. They're both Creole, they both speak French. And when they abandoned this place in 1984, English is still not allowed to be spoken inside of this house. We have 12 buildings here on the National Register that we're restoring, and we had to restore this thing twice. Did someone tell you that we had a big fire? Yeah, we had a big fire. August 2004 destroyed over half of the building. It took us three full years to restore it, and we finished the restoration December 2007. That day we were so happy, we gave ourselves one humongous party. But when you give a big party here on the river between New Orleans and Baton Rouge in December, you have got to follow the oldest tradition in the state. It's almost the law. You have to build a bonfire, and you have to light the bonfire. We did, as far away from the house as we possibly did. <laughs> Turn around, halfway to the gay spot of grass, there's, there's no grass, you see that? That's where this past December we did it again. We finished, we, we built, and we lit our bonfire for Christmas. We have been doing this out here nonstop since 1721. And this is the oldest holiday tradition in the United States. This is the way you built the house in Louisiana two centuries, it's called common sense. The first thing you notice about Creole house is we raise them high off the ground. That's the river right there. The Mississippi loves to flood in spring. It's cool if you live upstairs. Here you take a house, you always face it to water to catch a breeze. You put big doors and windows in front. People live here most of the year. They live in New Orleans in winter. So they built a porch that goes all the way around the house for shade. And the sides you can see were later closed for bedrooms for children. We do not have rock pillow at feet like you do in Minnesota. I have silt from Minnesota. <laughs> This is it. This is it. Is it right behind that? Yes, it is. Right there. I want you to look at this, though. It's the silt. See how dark it is? It's rich. It's fine. Everything grows in this. It goes down one mile before you see rock. When you build a house this large in silt, you don't want your place to sink. You see the brick columns and walls? They're all going eight feet into the ground. Above ground. Everything I can see is vertical. But as soon as it goes under, everything immediately becomes pyramids of brick. Eight feet below the ground right here. I have 72 pyramids that are touching each other, holding up the house so it will not sink. Until 1916, you could ride down this road, look at a house, and say, I know who lives inside. In 1916, 85% of the people out here still speak French. It is that other 15% that we call Les Americans, the Americans. And you saw from the road the house is painted white. Oh, you spoke English inside. You were from Texas, or you were Anglo. But if you saw it brightly painted, no white paint, they spoke French. We want you to know from the first step, you took through that gate right there, we got two worlds on this river, and by God, this ain't the other one. And in 1916, it all changed really fast. That's the year the English speakers took control of Louisiana government, and they changed the Constitution. So they forbid speaking French in government buildings and at every public school in Louisiana. It took the French speakers around the state for two centuries. It took us five years to realize that from now on, people are going to start calling us low class. And by the year 1922, out here in the river, all of our houses had been painted white. If you can't lick them, you paint them. This was white when we got here in 1993. We scraped away two coats of white paint, and we found that. It scared us to death. We had no idea it was going to be bright like this. 
We painted exactly what we found. We first painted the roof red. When they built this in 1805, it had a cypress shingle roof. The state fire code at the time said, you're living in New Orleans and you have horrible fires, you must by law put terracotta, you know what I'm talking about, Spanish tile, on the roof for fire protection. If you live out here in the country, you can put whatever you want on top, but you gotta paint it the color of Spanish tile. <laughs> the brick in the bottom, before the post they placed on the house, was glazed the color of a light denim blue, almost the color of your jeans, right? If you had, well, you got yellow, red, and blue, you're the color of the house. <laughs> this is not what Martha Stewart calls modern today. It's what you see in the Caribbean islands, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's the clue to my culture here. For three centuries, the Caribbean and South Louisiana places of mixed culture, and we had the same ethnic blend of people. We didn't save Laura because it's big and pretty. We saved the place because it's typical. A hundred years ago in Louisiana, you would have seen a thousand like this. Today, we have eight left. We went looking for information about the place we found in Paris at the Archive Nationale in France. 5,000 pages of documents about the people who live right here. And after that, we hit a jackpot in St. Louis, Missouri, and there we discovered a book. It was written by a woman who was born upstairs in 1861. This woman's name is Laura. It's just a very few of her stories you're gonna hear on this tour, but I do think by the time you leave, you'll understand that for 300 years on the river out here, we are not living like Anglo-Americans live. Laura's great-grandparents were one of the founding families of Louisiana. Her great-grandfather, Guillaume Duparc, was made governor of Louisiana by the Spanish King Carlos and marries Nanette Prudhomme of the oldest family in recorded Louisiana history. On the first page of Laura's book, she writes about her great-grandparents. A man named Guillaume Duparc from Normandy, France, who she said is violent. 20 years old, he shoots and kills his father's best friend and his father took after him in the fields to shoot him. And when he shot, he missed and killed his favorite cow. Papa was so upset, shipped him into the French Navy, he thought it was worse than killing him. No, he's lucky, good sailor. One year later, Duparque is crossing the Atlantic with the French fleet. And the next thing you know, he's fighting alongside George Washington against the British in the American Revolution. I met most of you on tour, but is anybody on this tour today from England? Not a single soul. That's good. This guy fought the British four times. He won the Battle of Pensacola, Florida for the King of Spain against England. And don't forget, the King of Spain, Carlos, is king of Louisiana. And Carlos makes this guy the governor of Louisiana. In five years, he went from being a murderer to a governor. Wow. If that's not good Louisiana politics, I have no idea. That still holds true today. It started before him. As the governor, he marries Nanette Prudhomme. The Prudhommes are the oldest French family in Louisiana, originally from Montreal. They got three children. He'd lose his job and we'd become the U.S. and right away ask the President Thomas Jefferson for property. Jefferson knows he hates the British. Jefferson kicked all the people off of this place and he gave him the entire property free. Turn around. Just look at the map of the plantation right here along the river. Just back up a bit so the people behind you can see this map. Thank you. I'm going to get over here. This is where a lot of you start today. It's called New Orleans. Am I right? The blue line is the Mississippi River. That is Baton Rouge. In between 400 plantations. This big yellow one, that's where we are now. You can see it touched the river. The property Jackson gave him started at the levee at the river and went straight behind you into swamp 18 miles. Trump kilometer. He set this up as a sugarcane plantation. The guy is 52 years old and he dies right away. <laughs> that day his wife, Nanette, stepped in and she takes over the whole family business. You and I are at the beginning of this tour and you need to know right now, a Creole farm on the river will not be like an American farm. And one big difference is this is never their home. This is not a residence. This is a business house. The only came here to work. 
That family has residences in the French Quarter. They have seven. Let me tell you about Nanette. She is the first president. Here in the river, we use the word president, and out here it means she owns this and has absolute control. She's really good at this. She runs a business 21 years, every year makes tons of money, and Nanette runs it in the Creole way. Here on the River Road, we still live on old saying, so if you talk to old folks, we're going to tell you very fast. We say, my family is my business, and my business is my family. I'm 62 years old, went to three children, and told them, I'm always going to be a mom, but I'm not always going to be president, and I quit. It's your turn. And on this spirit, when you hand business to the next generation, you don't do it like Americans or British, who will give it to the oldest son to run. No, you're in South Louisiana, and out here you have to be practical in order to survive. Please tell me, who do you think we give our business to? You work the whole you work your whole life to make this place a success for your children, grandchildren. Which one of your children gets it? The favorite. No. The youngest. No. The one who works hard? No. 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 Think practically. You give it to the government. You don't give it to them. You sell it to them. So you hand it to the, the next president to be one of your children. Which one of your children gets to be the next president? No, I said practical. It's called the smartest child. She has three children, two older boys and a much younger girl. Who got to be president? You all knew that answer. Starting with Annette, women ran this place 84 years straight, four generations of women, all the way down to her great-granddaughter, Laura. And Louisiana women can do this because when the French came here, it was the first time in Western history that women were given equal property rights. And to this, they added special tax and banking privileges for the ladies. So women ran with this. By 1803, Louisiana purchased to make sure your smartest would be present. In Louisiana, we already have eight schools for girls. A century later on the river here, 1903, we still have as many women as men who own businesses and who own farms. But then that 20th century came to us too. And every generation out here, we became more and more. The word in Louisiana is called Americanized. And ladies here took a back seat like everywhere else. Plantation life was hard for all involved. Here we learn why Laura left this life behind. This is the bedroom, and it's the office for the oldest man in the business. The first person to occupy this is his office, and his bedroom is this guy on the wall. That's Louis Dupart, who is the son of the couple you met downstairs. I have a much better portrait of him. He's staring at me and you right through the door. He's that guy in her book that Laura calls the crazy Creole. <laughs> Look around the morning on the wall in this room, page with all that writing on it. See it? That's the very first page of the book Laura wrote. Tell me, in what language do you think Laura writes her book? French. Mm -hmm. Somebody's really close to that page. Turn around and tell us what language it is. It is English. Why? Because Laura leaves the place, she goes up being a multimillionaire, and she rejects being Creole. She writes, Grandma Elizabeth is Creole, I'm not going to be one. But then she writes, this Louis Depart character is Creole, forget the whole thing. She gave up her culture and her heritage. On this one tour, I have South Americans, Europeans, Canadians, and Americans. I'm sorry if I'm missing anybody. Um, I, I know you don't want to give up your culture and your heritage, huh? Laura did. And the reason starts with him. She said, that guy's crazy. By the time he was 19 on the river, people called Louis the fire eater. He had a horrible temper. And by 19, it already killed two men with his swords. These are two of his swords. Laura said they're not pretty. He just killed people with them over again. His mother is the lady he met in the basement, Nanette. She knows the law is getting after him and gives him lots of the company's money. Ships him to Europe to save him from the sheriff. He's in Europe for five years with the money, he's having a ball. He parties day and night, 
departing to Frankfurt, Germany, he meets and marries this lady, Fanny Rooker, but that couple has to stay in Europe till we get a new sheriff right here, until Mom and Annette has paid off some politicians. I have only one letter from his mama. It is to him. It's what you can call a very short letter. I get to read you the whole letter. It goes, my dear son, Louis, you can please come back to Louisiana right now. It's so safe out here today, son, we have just paid off everybody. <laughs> they came back within months. People started to call them the Marquis and the Marquise of the River in her book, although nobody parties like they do, and they turned this into a party house. And then one day, Fanny had a beautiful baby girl, a child that they're going to call Elisa. When this little girl was born, mom and dad promised to make Eliza the next president of all family businesses, no matter what it takes. Do you know why they were adamant? Do you know who this character is? Louis, the older brother, the smart little with your met downstairs. I'm trying to tell you, that's the brother who got passed over the day she was chosen president. And when I said, the day that happened, the fiery the guy hit the ceiling, he did not come down, and he took it out on their little girl. Eliza will be president, but that means she's got to be pushed to be perfect, beautiful, intelligent, and second to no child. So as she grew up, the pressure didn't stop. When she was 16, young man, how old were you? 15. She was 16, she broke out on the face of pimples, and they were furious. They took the daughter with them to Paris, and on the way they told her, when we get to France, we're gonna find a doctor who can cure you of acne. They found the doctor, he gave an injection, and he killed her right off. They had a death mask made of this child's face, and from that had a portrait painter of a dead teenager. This is the original frame that the portrait was placed in in the year 1832. And after many years, we finally found in Chester, Illinois, the original image of Eliza. Look, there's in the mirror. Mom and Dad came back from Paris with this girl's body. They buried her right up here in the Catholic cemetery where the tomb is today. And the day of that funeral, Louis went to Fanny and he said, my dear, it's over, it's called divorce, goodbye. And he went right back to his home on Royal Street in the French Quarter. He bought himself two teenage slave girls to be sex concubines. The three of them will live together for the next 18 years on Royal Street. They had 21 children. If you look at the New Orleans telephone book today under Louis' last name, you'll see that it's spelled the same way. It is spelled D-U-P-A-R-C. And do you know what you're reading in the New Orleans telephone book right now? It is the living descendants of this man and those two girls. But Louis and the two slaves will all die at his home on Royal Street within two days of each other. They were all killed in that horrendous cholera epidemic. The one you know story of the city, but he quickly swept up the river and returned to New Orleans. In this whole area, within 31 days, 14,000 people were dead. From the day of the girl's funeral, the day Louis left Fanny, is the day she walks right back here into the, his office, this room, and she places them on the mantel, and she locks the doors to the room, and does not step foot out of the room the rest of her life. Fanny Worker spent 20 years in this room. She died in it when she was 64, and all that time she had visitors. And when they walked through that door, she told them, I have committed murder for my vanity, and I have to be punished. In her memoirs, Laura wrote, this became the deadest house on the river. 20 years, they cannot do business, they cannot do entertainment, because for 20 years, they had that woman right there incarcerated on the inside of the house. And do you know why we tell this story to visitors from Massachusetts? We would like you to understand something. Creoles are not like your average white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant American. For one thing, we do not believe that moderation is a virtue. <laughs> it is always good to give people giggle at that story. Because if you giggle, that tells me you have a healthy sense of After the break, the Creole family saga continues as we return to Laura Plantation. What's the matter with you, Laura? You don't love your mom and dad? Because you're Creole, your family comes first. He says, but tonight, I'm listening. It sounds like you might want to be an individual and live your life on your own terms. 
and girl, if that is the case, those Americans will down the road. To pop, I love you with my whole heart and soul, but that's what I want. I'm going to grow up to be a mom and a great American and a new weather girl. Next as World Footprints continues. My name is Mo. I'm born and raised in Alexandria, Egypt, and I live in New Orleans for almost 17 years. And I, I like to hear wallet footprints. Thank you. Suffrage Centennials is having its first birthday in 2014. Find out about events and celebrations. Suffragecentennials.com Tap New York State on the shoulder about putting the spirit of 1776 suffrage campaign wagon on permanent exhibit. Celebrate women's freedom to vote and rock the cradle of the U.S. women's rights movement. Suffragewagon.org Hi, this is Johnny from New Orleans. Welcome, World Footprints, and come visit us in New Orleans sometime. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Laura's dad, Emile LeCoul, would marry his cousin, Desiree, and they would later have a daughter named Laura. As we learn from Norman, her birth would be the reason he goes from being a black sheep to a very wealthy man. Laura writes, my grandma Elizabeth got meaner every year she got older. When Laura's daddy Emil was 13, Elizabeth went to him one day and said, my dear son Emil, I cannot stand you anymore. Son, I can already see you're going to grow up to be a Negro spoiler. You just won't beat him hard enough, will you? Mm-hmm. To make Emil a man, she shipped him to the military academy in Bordeaux, France, and she kept him there. And when he was 17, that's when she had that portrait of painted at the academy. She will call him in a letter, a sensitive child. And Emil heard about that and told his friends, he said, you know, that's not a compliment from my mama. And years later, he's still in France. He got word from right here that his mom and his sister are keeping him completely out of all family inheritance. Why? Because that guy is 34 years old, and he still does not have a child. And I told you something for in the basement. On the river, we still tell ourselves, we say, my family is my business, and my business is what? Do you know what this means to me? It says, if I don't have children on my own to become the future officers of this business, I do not get part of the pie. And he knows it, and he's on the next boat to New Orleans. Emil is here five months. He marries his cousin, Desiree, who then has three quick miscarriages. But on the fourth pregnancy, she has a baby girl named Laura. As soon as Laura is born, he inherits $6.5 million of the family's business. From her grandmother Elizabeth to her mother Desiree, Laura learned what her purpose in life was, as understood from a Creole perspective. These are the ladies in Laura's life. In the center, Laura's mom, Desiree. This is Desiree's mother. Her name is Cephalide. Cephalide is a Greek name. The Creoles are gaga about having Greek names. Is anybody this for Greek? Right here. You know what the word Cephalide means? Cephalide. What does it mean? I don't, you don't know. Okay. I had a group of 32 Greeks on Mardi Gras Day. The only one who spoke English was the guy. So I said, I think I have a chance to find out what this means. So I asked, I said, what does this word Cephalie mean? She said, I said, does it mean something? She said, well, of course it means something. It means she's the boss. Cephalie's <laughs> mother's name is Laura. Don't get confused. We're going to call that one Laura number one. Because when little Laura number two is baptized, her full Christian name is Desiree, Cephalie, Laura, and Elizabeth. They're in South Louisiana, and now here we call that great expectations. But it also means serious business. All three ladies are widows when they're 41. When they're called upon to save the family and the business, they do it. 
When they are teenagers, they're all being taught by the same Catholic nuns, the Sisters of the Sacred Heart. You know what they taught them? They said, young lady, the purpose of your life when you grow up is not to be an independent adult. That's just a modern American idea. You're Creole. The purpose of your life is to sacrifice it for your husband and children. That's what they did. This Laura, number one, when her husband dies, he leaves with a farm $12.5 million in debt. And that woman still has 13 of her children to raise. She did. Fast and successful, she went to the U.S. Congress and got the money. Laura writes, hardly a month goes by in my early years that my mom does not keep reminding me why they call me Laura. And you don't think that he goes on? Elizabeth will invite men in the room for business. She will never invite men or visitors into that room. As a teenager, Laura would make a decision to leave her life at Laura Plantation, something her father Emil could only dream of but never had the courage to do, as Norman explains. When Laura was 14, she was seated right here on my cover. She tells her pops and dad, I'd like to leave the place. I really want to go to school full-time in New Orleans. It's where girls may get to speak English. Emil cried. He lifted his head and said, What's the matter with you, Laura? You don't love your mom and your dad. He said, You're Creole. Your family comes first. He says, But tonight, I'm listening. It sounds like you might want to be an individual and live your life on your own terms. And girl, if that is the case, those Americans live down the road. I said, Papa, I love you with my whole heart and soul, but that's what I want. I'm going to grow up to be a modern, liberated American, and Emil let it go. You think he's angry? It's exactly what Emil wants for himself, his whole life. The guy, though, if he never, ever has the guts to say the same thing to his own mom. At 14, Laura's out of here. She's in New Orleans for years. 19, she's still there. She's telling girlfriends, I'm not coming out here in the middle of nowhere and want to show them. Emil died. Two weeks later, she's president. She ran it for 10 years and traveled a lot. Spent her summers away at Hush Resort on the East Coast. She was at the Greenbrier White Sulphur Spring, but she met this guy from St. Louis, Missouri, named Charles Gore, and they were secretly engaged. Do you know it took her six years to tell her own mom that she's engaged for Presbyterian? She finally told her, said, Now, Mama, what do I do? Desiree said, You're president, do whatever you want. And she sold everything to homes in Louisiana. She sold all businesses in the state. Sold all property and real estate in the city and the quarter, and then lastly sold this place for $19,500. She wants out. She, she gets out. She marries Charles in a home on Bourbon Street, will move to St. Louis, and live there for 72 years and come back home. She told her husband, I can't get it out of my system, and I dream about the place all the time. Before that woman died, she wrote it down. In spite of the harshness of her grandmother Elizabeth, as evidence in her relationships with her slaves, Laura's mother, Desiree, always reminded Laura that there were good people beyond the plantation and that slaves were people who mattered, too. When Laura was five months old, she's in the dining room rock by her mom. Desiree here screaming and crying, coming from this courtyard, and she ran on the porch to see what was wrong, and she found Elizabeth standing right here in the middle, counting money. Looked into the courtyard, could see this guy holding the reins of two wagons going in opposite directions. She knows the guy in the middle is a slave merchant. In one wagon, Anna, a slave from the place, 30 years old, crying. In this other wagon, Anna's three-year-old son, Tucson, jumping up and down, screaming. Desiree ran the house to get her husband. She said, Emil, you won't believe this. Your mom is out here selling Anna. That woman has been a saint to your family for years. And what is worse, I think she's selling her baby to another family. You get your behind out here now, you stop her as though it is her own baby, Laura. And Desiree knows one more thing. She knows that this is her husband's child. Don't forget, Desiree is Creole. She's thinking, that's my flesh and blood. And he came out, he tried to persuade Elizabeth. He said, Mom, you're doing something wrong. You need to give your money back. And she cursed him out and walked into her bedroom with the cash. Amir went to his bedroom, Desiree handed him the money. He came out and bought them both back. 
this will happen in the middle of the Civil War. And two months later, Emile's fighting as the captain for the South. Five months after that is the day the Union gunboat Essex will sail up from New Orleans and bomb this house. And the shelling of this building, the lady we met in the basement first, Manette, is killed and slaves later free. Two years later, war's over. Emile got his first chance to come back to see what is standing. And the day he rides up on his horse to the front gate, the woman Anna sees him and runs after him crying. At the gate, she opens it. She falls down on her knees in front of Emile's heart, pleases him to be his personal aid and nurse, and he agrees right there. She's going to stay with him until the day he dies. At Emile's funeral in New Orleans, Anna goes up to Laura, made the same request, and Laura agreed. And she stayed with Laura to the last day Laura lived in Louisiana. Anna gave him 25 years of service after the Civil War. And that last day Laura lived in Louisiana is a day for a big wedding at a home on Bourbon Street. She wrote an article Laura did in the New Orleans Picayune newspaper describing her own wedding. And you can read this article because in it she wrote, the woman who's standing next to me on the altar is a member of my family. And her name is Anna. Can you see the circular brick well out there behind the benches and the palm tree? When Laura was seven, she was playing on top of that. The guy came up to the well to get water for his mule. She knows him. He's 72 years old. His name is Pasolini. Well, we think Laura and Pa had never been within inches of each other. They were so close that when Pa went to say hello, he did this. He bowed and he tipped his hat. And Laura touched him on the forehead and said, Pa, what's this I see above your eyes? He said, girl, when I was a young man, I was a slave here. I had to be free. I escaped. I ran through every sugar cane field I could till I reached the swamp in the back where nobody could catch me. Turn around. Look as far as you can through the trees. There's a tree line way back there. Can you see it? That's the swamp. He said, but your grandmother had men grab me there, and they brought me right back. And here in the courtyard, she took the branding iron with her initials on it. She branded me in the forehead so that everybody could say I belonged to her. Laura had seen calves branded. She ran inside to tell the mother, she said, this guy is lying to me. My grandmother never could do this, could she? And Desiree stuffed Laura into a chair. She said, you're my girl. I cannot lie to you, but I wish you'd never heard it. You're too young to understand. She said, you're going to listen real hard. She said, first of all, Laura, you heard what Pa told you? It happened just that way. But you need to know, girl, there are decent people in this place who would never do this to another person. And we're the ones out here taking care of you as you get older. And then, Laura, there are people out here you care about and love who've done horrible things. And as you get older, you're going to find out a whole lot worse. She said, I want you to remember one thing today, please. We got 200 people on this place. 200 of us. We're no better and we're no worse than the kind you'll meet anywhere else. And 65 years later, Laura lives in St. Louis and her two daughters came excited and said, Mom, we started to read a very good book about plantations in the South. A book our friends keep talking about is called Gone with the Wind. Is this the way your life was for you in Louisiana? She said, you don't read another page. I'll write it. it. Took Laura five years to write these stories I've been telling you. We found them in St. Louis, 1993. On that road back, we read them and realized she never once mentioned hoop skirts, mint juleps, and the glory and the grandeur of the South. It's her story. Some are happy and funny, but she talks a lot about how boring and tragic and excessive it was to live on these places for two centuries. As we toured Laura, we learned things about slavery, plantation life, and American folklore. Norman weaves them all together as he does here. Basically, the owners tell slaves they're working 60 to 90 straight days, sometimes 20 hours a day, seven days a week. And it does not take long for the owner to realize, i got to give these men and women strong, positive incentives to get out there and do this. Not only is this difficult, it's almost lethal. You start when it's 95 degrees and 90% humidity. How many of you have been very close up to a sugarcane plant before? What does the leaf look like? It's a serrated razor blade. So these people are wearing at least three layers of clothing so they don't bleed to death out there. In the heat and humidity, that will kill you. The snakes will kill you. You're surrounded by people wielding machetes. There goes an arm. 
In order to get the men and women out here on the river between your wallets and bad roots, slaves are paid in cash $1,500 in today's money on the average per year. What do you think slaves do with the money when they get it? No? What would you do with it if you got it and you were a slave? You hide, you hid it and did what with it? Absolutely right. You heard that? You save it to be free. Every year they know their price is going down. You, one day the two will meet. And when they do, you go to the owner and say, here it is. Am I free? You think the owner disagrees? He gets his money back. And tomorrow I can go to New Orleans and buy himself a young, stronger, healthier, prettier slave. That system is working for him. So much so that by the year 1820 along the river here, there are more millionaires than the rest of the United States combined. Now I get to tell you why we saved this particular form. That's through with this post. It has a date on it of 1871. That year, a teenager who lived a mile up road by the name of Alcy Forche walked into these slave cabins and wrote down stories and heard the workers telling their children in French. Mr. Forche will collect stories of Compère Lapin and Compère Bouquet. That's the clever rabbit and the stupid fool. And 25 years later, he's president of the American Folklore Society and is dean at Tulane University. He publishes stories he called them Louisiana Folk Tales. And one year later, the stories were adapted and published by his friend in Atlanta, Georgia, Mr. Joel Chandler Harris. Ever since, the English-speaking world will know the stories as the tales of Burr Rabbit. This is where the stories were written down, and that's why we saved this place. All stories of this uh, smart rabbit came to Louisiana in 1721 with the slaves off the ships from Senegal. And in Senegal, West Africa today, third graders who speak the native language at home, called Wolof, have to learn French at school. They're taught from one textbook, written in 1953. A man went around and collected all the folk tales and Wolof the children already knew and translated them into French. I have his book in my gift shop. In French, 82 stories of the clever rabbit and the stupid hyena, including the story I grew up with here in Louisiana in the 1950s. My mom read me in English called The Little Tar Baby. Huh? What's in there? Well, of course you do. Yeah. It's the most widely known folk tale in the world. As we learn more about the origins of Br'er Rabbit from Norman, we walk to the slave cabins for more insights into this part of American folklore, which reflected African and Native American storytelling. These stories were recorded in the cabins at Laura. This is the original uh, Tar Baby story that was recorded in the cabins from Mr. Forte. You can see it has a Creole title. No, it is completely in English, word for word. I first heard this in the 50s. My mom read me it was three pages, and this is 37. I guess my mama did not know the full story of her rap. <laughs> Here's the book Florida, her memoirs. And on the tour, I can only give you just a very few of her stories. We did not want you to get your experience. We stuck in 142 photographs to give you the visual memory of your visit. Bar said, Mama told me the slaves lived in a room and they had a porch. Desiree was correct because slaves do not have this room. This is going to be added much, much later after the Civil War. These men and women need to get out here as early as what time in the morning to go to work? 3 a.m. What does it look like after 3 a.m.? Pitch black. They pointed me to get up every morning, cows to milk, animals, machines to get ready before that sun rose. And from 13 years of age on up, you're an adult and you work in two shifts. The first is 3 to 11. 11, you come in here and you rest and sleep and eat. You can kind of feel it a little, little bit today. Nine months of the year, you can get very hot out here in the middle of the day. So hot. Some days you will not start to work until 4 or 5 p.m. and you work till light allow. It doesn't, um, it's not until the 20th century in Louisiana that you're even allowed by law to cook with grease in a wooden house. That's the state law. This is why the children are bringing you breakfast and lunch from that big kitchen. Do you want an evening meal? Most people do. For every five cabins, there's a small brick structure. You cook there and you eat here. You can pretty much stuff 
sleep every night in the same place, and where would that be? Florida. No, not Louisiana. The floor is considered filthy. A lot of your nights are going to be warm and muggy. Yes, Flora said, when I live on the plantation, my big bed is always my hammock on the porch. And people can live in these houses until 1977. As we wrap up, Norman provides us this one final ironic twist in this family tale involving Laura's great-grandmother, Nanette. It's the last French-style house we have out here along the river. Laura's family still has a chateau estate in Normandy, France, and on the property they have this. And when we were there, we asked them, what do you call that kind of house? I've got one on the Mississippi River. They say we like to call it a lantern house. They say a lantern is long. It's one room deep facing west with big doors, but lots of light in. The wood was put in the house in the 20th century. Look to the ground. Do you see brick again? Then you see big wide openings in the brick. This one has eight-foot-wide glass doors to let all the light in. Built in 1829 with a lady you met in the basement first, Lynette. She's retired, no longer living in the business house. But she does not want to live in the family home on Jackson Square, and she uh, built it for herself. And she made uh, her daughter Elizabeth pay her to stay as a consultant. <laughs> and Elizabeth paid her $75,000 a year to consult from the top porch. Laura said the woman stood on the porch for 33 years and consulted, and for 33 years in this place, everybody jumped until the day she was killed. And that is the same lady I told you earlier who was in the house when it was bombed. You remember Nanette? Yeah, she was 94 years old that day, standing on the front porch of a big house, screaming her head off, yelling, you cannot bomb my house. My husband fought alongside George Washington. Kapow. That was the end of Nanette, and that's the end of the tour. Norman Marmion, we thank you so much for being with us today on World Footprints. All right, my pleasure. When we return, we're going to learn more about New Orleans' famous Faubourg Treme neighborhood from director Don Logston in a film that she and fellow New Orleanian Lois Eric L.E. produced. I don't want to leave the impression that there was some sort of a paradise mm. uh, back in the 1700s, 1800s, by any means. It was a place where people were always struggling to survive, mm-hmm. but it was also a place where things were infinitely better and there were infinitely more possibilities than there were for African Americans in the rest of the country. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, this is Chantel from New Orleans. I love worldfootprintsradio.com. You guys rock. An anti-trafficking organization in India teaches former sex workers the skills of carpentry and printing. A cooperative in Brazil gives jobs to former forced laborers. And a boy from Ghana who was forced to work in the fishing industry goes back to school. Human traffickers exploit their victims. But by joining forces, we can help the victims rebuild their lives. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking. UNGift.org Hi, this is Keenan Jonah. Welcome to New Orleans. We're here with the World Footprint people, and they are the best people in the world. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. As we continue our coverage of New Orleans, we wanted to share with you a neighborhood that isn't well known, but is so integral to the cultural history and development of the Crescent City, the neighborhood of Faubourg Treme. Arguably the oldest black neighborhood in America, the birthplace of the civil rights movement in the South, and the home of jazz, Treme is a district where African Americans lived free during the days of slavery, and people of different socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds cohabitated. The many golden nuggets of this untold history of the neighborhood 
have recently been captured in a new documentary by film director Don Logston entitled Faubourg Treme, The Untold Story of Black New Orleans. And Don Logston joins us today. Don, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It's our pleasure. Now, I understand this film marked your feature-length directing debut, and my goodness, all the kudos. You have won numerous awards, um, Tribeca, I mean, just off the charts. Congratulations to you, first of all. Thank you. Well, it was a very collaborative effort. I started it several years ago with an old friend of mine from high school. We're both New Orleans natives. Uh, His name is Lois Eric Eli, and he had recently bought a house in the neighborhood. And so part of his journey of fixing up that house became a story in the film. And uh, he'd never made a film either. Uh, I'd spent most of my life editing films, documentaries, mostly for other people. Mm-hmm. And his career up till then had been as a primarily as a newspaper writer. Mm. So it was a big, big jump for both of us. Well, you know, isn't that wonderful? What you know, when you step out on faith, like uh, like you guys did, you know what what comes back to you. Now, can you give us a, a brief synopsis of this film? It's a film that is an exploration on many different levels of this community. We actually started thinking that we were um, most entranced and interested in showing the contemporary sort of artistic flourishing that was happening there. Mm. Uh, And the more we worked on the project, the more we got engrossed in the history of the um, neighborhood, which very few people know anything about and which we came to believe was um, really vital to American history and a super important chapter of civil rights history that nobody knew about outside of New Orleans or even very many New Orleanians. Um, So the history became a really... um, important part of the film, and what we try to do is combine those two elements and show how the history continues to influence people's lives today. Um, You see it in the architecture, in the music, in many, many different ways, less so in the politics, unfortunately, although hopefully there's a renaissance coming in that. (laughs) Um, And uh, we begin when the neighborhood began, which was in the very... uh, beginning of the city of New Orleans uh, in the 1700s, and we follow the characters all the way through the beginning of them coming to terms with with what had happened to Mm. their community after Katrina. Mm. Don, talk to us a little bit about the neighborhood itself. Geographically, it's right on the other side of the French Quarter, if you're going away from the river. Uh, The actual boundaries of Trinay have changed many, many times over the years, but the one that's always stayed the same is Rampart Street. So when you mm-hmm. cross out of the French Quarter over Rampart Street, you're in Tremay. Um, the architecture there is primarily Creole cottages and shotguns. Mm. Although there are some very elegant, um, elaborate mansions that still exist. It was, was and always has been a very mixed neighborhood on all different levels um, mm-hmm. of, of, of meanings of that word. So... Throughout its entire history, there have been white and black people living there. There have been uh, immigrants and natives. There were free people. There were slaves. Of course, not anymore, but uh, there were, you know, it was predominantly a working-class neighborhood, but there were also quite a few wealthy people and a lot of poor people. You know, it's not, I don't want to leave the impression that it was some sort of a paradise Mm. uh, back in the 1700s and 1800s by any means. It was a place where people were always struggling 
to survive. Mm-hmm. But it was also a place where things were infinitely better and there were infinitely more possibilities than there were for African Americans in the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, today, if you go to the neighborhood, well, actually, let me back up a little bit. When we started filming in the neighborhood in 2000, I think you could easily say that even within New Orleans, most people thought of that area as run down and dangerous. Um, and yet still sort of the holding ground for some of the most important culture in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Parades happen there at least once a week. Mm-hmm. This really vibrant church life. Um, it feels in a lot of ways when you walk through it in the daytime mm-hmm. like a very small village in another country. You know, something that barely exists anymore in the, world, in the United States where everybody knows each other. Um, if you went there at night, it was a different story because a lot of people were afraid to go outside because the crime is pretty intense. Mm-hmm. Um, since Katrina, it's changed again in many ways. There are parts of it that are more dilapidated because of flooding or abandonment, but it's also seen quite a surge of interest mm-hmm. from developers and from people who never would have thought of living in that area before the storm. So I, I think the best way to describe it right now is it's a neighborhood on the cusp of a lot of change, and people are really hopeful mm-hmm. about what kind of change that will be and what kind of change it will mean for them. You know, I, I know you started, as you mentioned, you started filming this documentary prior to uh, to Katrina, but um, you actually edited it afterwards, and I'm just wondering how... Katrina came into play, and just uh, because nobody nobody expected Katrina, um, and and I would assume that Katrina actually may have resulted in perhaps you going in a different direction in some ways with this film. Is that a correct assumption? Yes, I would say it is. It I think it really honed our focus in that we decided that the most important story for us was the civil rights story and the political struggles that had happened there um, over the centuries um, because what happened during Katrina so clearly brought home to us that these were ongoing issues. Mm-hmm. Um, we unfortunately had to lose a lot of early history in order to deal with Katrina in the film because we had you know, time limitations on how long the documentary could be. Mm-hmm. And also you can, you can really only tell so many stories inside that format without overwhelming people with detail. Yeah, and I and I know you uncovered uh a tremendous number of, of stories. Um and and I know one of your main characters uh is uh, a seventy five year old gentleman, uh a carpenter in fact, uh named Irvin Irving, who is uh a a captivating storyteller. So share with us a few of the stories that you uncovered uh, that Irvin shared as, as you know, uh, about his life growing up in, in Treme and uh, and some of the, the history and the golden nuggets that you actually uncovered. Sure. Uh, Mr. Trevine, to me, represents everything that's special about New Orleans. I just really feel blessed to have met him. <laughs> uh, he unfortunately is no longer with us. He passed away shortly after Katrina. Mm. But he embodies several really great traditions that have gone for generations and generations in that neighborhood. Um, that of really skilled craftsmen. 
he was a wonderful carpenter, laid a hand in restoring and saving a lot of the old homes in Tremay in the course of his lifetime. Mm-hmm. He actually did not grow up in Tremay. He spent part of his early childhood there in another neighborhood called the Seventh Ward, which is also home to lots of craftsmen. Uh-huh. But his ancestors had lived there for generations, okay. and he, he worked there every day. Um, well, the big surprise was <laughs> he was renovating Lois's house when we first met him. Uh, and Lola said, we've got to interview my carpenter. He's just this great storyteller. <laughs> uh, and little did we know, he starts telling stories. He's like, oh, I have this great, great uncle. Yeah, he used to publish a newspaper or something. Mm. <laughs> uh, and it turned out he was the editor of the first black daily newspaper in the United States. Oh, my goodness. Um, which was initially published in the Tremere. So that was a really, that became a big thread in our story at one point and mm-hmm. trying to discover more about who this uh, man whose name is Paul Trevine was. Um, but he also just had really wonderful descriptions of what daily life used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that didn't make it into the film, unfortunately, but Trino was home to dozens and dozens and dozens of organizations um, that were called mutual aid societies mm-hmm. and social benefit clubs. And he grew up going to quite a few of those as a child. They would, you know, throw parties and things like that. But more importantly, or equally importantly, I should say, they um, helped send people to school. They provided training. They provided burial benefits, support to families when the main breadwinners weren't able to go out and work. Uh, and that was really part of a tight, um, tight-knit sort of insular society that sustained, sustained itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Don, you've given us uh, a flavor of, of the interesting history of uh, Treme, but why do you think so much of this history remained hidden uh, for such a long time? That's a really good question. <laughs> um, you know, my dad was a historian, and he dedicated a lot of his life to uncovering much of this history. Mm-hmm. And when I say uncovering, it's not like it was buried. Well, I guess mm-hmm. it was buried. It was buried in archives, and a lot of it was written in French. Mm-hmm. So to be fair, that's part of the problem. But I would I would venture to say that it's a very small part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And that the bigger part of the problem is that the people who were writing textbooks in the Deep South really had no interest in this history being told. Hmm. Uh, or preserved in archives. An awful lot of the images we got came from people's homes. Hmm. They weren't, I mean, some of them are from collections, of course, but only, I would say, in the 60s and 70s did there become a real effort to try and include African-American history mm-hmm. into the textbooks. I went to high school in New Orleans, and so did Lois, and we weren't taught any of this. Mm. And we had a whole semester of Louisiana history. <laughs> yeah, well, d- ditto. Actually, we're, I think we're probably all in the same uh, same age range, and 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 really, I think until recently, there's there's been no no acknowledgement, no awareness of um, our history, and you know, and I think one of the things that really frustrates me, and and and, and what I love about what you guys did is. You know, it's not just uh, black history or about white history. It's collectively all of our history. This is, you know, this is this is common history. I couldn't agree more. I'm not black, and I didn't grow up in Tremé, but, you know, it's mm-hmm. my city, and it's my country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and these are incredibly important things that happen there. Absolutely. That enrich us all when we know about them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, New Orleans is trying to rebuild. 
Um, from not quite the ground up, but really uh, it's the most fundamental rebuilding of a major American city that's ever happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think knowing this history and knowing what has been, what went wrong in the past, but also some of the amazing things that were tried mm-hmm. is incredibly important at this stage of, of our present. Absolutely, absolutely. I I wanted to mention, just for our audience's uh, sake, is that this film has been seen on PBS, and you've done a lot of screenings uh, around the country. Um, According to the website, your website right now, I think the uh, April second was your last uh, last screening uh, in in this country. Do you have? What are your plans going forward? Where where else can we see? this wonderful documentary? Well, um, we actually continue to have screenings that we have nothing to do with these days. Mm. Uh, It's really one of the greatest things that's been happening is the extent of uh, the variety of groups who are using it. So Mm. just a couple days ago, we had a benefit screening for an organization that is trying to train young people in California in the culinary arts. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and one of these kids had seen the doc and was really inspired by it. And, uh, so, and then we have things that are benefits for urban planners, things that are mm-hmm. benefits for, you know, Catholic church groups. Lois just spoke at a uh, convention of reformed rabbis who thought it was important for their group to see the films. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really uh, having a life that we never could have predicted. Um, if people aren't able to go to it, you can look on our website to see where screenings are happening, uh, and you can also order a copy of the DVD on our website. And your website address is? I'm sorry. Sorry, trenedoc.com, T-R-E-N-E-D-O-C.com. Okay. And then PBS will continue to rebroadcast it uh, for the next, I believe it's two or three years. Generally, they run it um, during Black History Month, Mm-hmm. And also some stations run it during carnival season. Okay. Mm-hmm. Don, I'm curious, given the impact this film has had in so many communities, communities that cross the economic, uh, social strata, religious strata, I'm wondering about the contemporary Treme community today and the response that they've had to the film and to some of the things that you've been able to share with them. What have they said, what have the young people there uh, said about the film and perhaps the sense of pride that they have in living in such a historic neighborhood, even though it's a very tough neighborhood? Right. The response has been really remarkable, I have to say. And it's not just young people from Tremo, but from New Orleans. We've had a lot of screenings in schools. Um, and, you know, I don't know what you were like when, it, when you were a teenager, but when I used to hear so, you know, I can I can see the kids kind of like sink into their chairs and get ready to take a nap or text their friends. Mm-hmm. And about 20 minutes into it, you can see that they're all really engaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the questions that they ask afterwards are similar to some of the ones that you're asking, which is like, why why didn't anybody teach me this? <laughs> or, you know, I heard a little bit about that from my great-grandfather. Mm-hmm. You know, if anybody knows anything about the history, they, they learned it in their families. And the things that kids are most proud of is the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's the thing that survived the most. It's the most visible. 
representation of the culture to the outside world, I think, and it also, it's really been passed down also family by family by family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's still very common to walk around that neighborhood and see little troops of elementary school children forming their own little band and marching around. Oh dear! (laughs) Now you've had, uh, you you know, you've been blessed with a lot of support uh, as well. A lot of uh, you've had a wonderful group of partners and and contributors. Uh, I think um, uh, Wynton Marsalis, uh, among others. Talk about some of the people who actually uh, came together and helped you build this wonderful project. Well, I sort of see this project as a reunion of a bunch of New Orleanians who were scattered in many different places. Um, I had just recently moved back to the city when I decided to launch the project. Lois had moved back a few years before me. Wynton, of course, is in New York running the Lincoln Jazz Center, but he went to high school with us. Mm-hmm. And Lois used to be a manager of his band, a road manager. Our cinematographer is an incredibly wonderful, talented DP out in Los Angeles. He's originally from Treme. His name is Keith Smith. And then in that, we also had another young uh, Venezuelan who was living in New Orleans who had been there for, I think, it's it's his second home. He'd been there, I think he went to high school there and then college mm-hmm. in Diego Velasco. And then, I mean, all the way down the, the list, the woman who helped us gather a lot of the archival footage I think her family is fourth or fifth generation Treme, and they still run the funeral parlor in the heart of the neighborhood. So it was really a great kind of reunion of New Orleans. I think we all felt really strongly that our city has been the subject of so many documentaries and television specials made by people who come down from L.A. or New York for a couple of weeks mm-hmm. that we wanted to try and tell our own story. Well, according to all the reviews you've gotten, you know, must-sees, um, you know, reviews that talk about the accuracy of of your story. I mean, I, I think you guys uh, have hit it spot on. And, um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, the accolades that you, you've gotten uh, from, from critics uh, alike, uh, I think, Validate what you what you've done in, in your mission and and uh, mission accomplished. <laughs> Congrats Thank to you. you. We've been very lucky. <laughs> mm. Well, Don, we appreciate so much your time today and for uh, for sharing the history of Treme and 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 certainly uh, for documenting uh, the story and the history accurately. And we look forward to seeing it uh, as well. Don Logston is the uh, film director of. Herbert Treme, The Untold Story of Black New Orleans. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for today's World Footprints Radio Show. All of our shows are archived on our website, so if you've missed a show or you want to hear the World Footprints Travel Report giving you the day's breaking travel and world news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. And while there, subscribe to our newsletter and Click on the social media icons to follow us on your favorite social network at World Footprints. Also, check out our low-cost cultural immersion discovery tour to Vietnam this year. Today's show is brought to you by DLO, a faster and safer way to buy and sell locally. With DLO, you can download, register, list, or buy within 30 seconds. It's the newest, quickest, safest way to buy and sell in your area. Download DLO, that's D-E-A-L-O, from iTunes. 
We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. Because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. This has been a presentation of World Footprints Media, all rights reserved.